God is good. All the time. So I'm at this preacher's meeting in Kansas City, first of the week. People are kind of talking about where they've been, and one of the pastors is retired. So he's been visiting some other churches. And he described this one church. He said, it was a really large church. He said, the music was great. He said, the band, everybody was dressed so fashionably and so contemporary. He said, it was just awesome. He said, then the pastor got up and he had a suit on. I said, well, that pastor must be awesome. (laughs) Welcome to Resurrection 2023 and launch for 500. Somebody sent me a text today. They said, it's been so long since you started talking about this. I can't believe that it's finally here. And in a sense, it does feel like we put out our Christmas lights in September, but it is here. Today is our launch day and I'm crazy excited about it. Next seven weeks will take us through the Palms, Passover, Passion, and Resurrection. We'll follow up with Horse Trough Sunday, Student Sunday, and then our annual celebration of when we became an independent congregation called Charter Sunday. And that's a Sunday we'll receive new members. Now, with 500, now 555. Yes, my friends, not 500, 555. And they tell me some more people did join today, so we're upwards of 555. Let me tell you what it's going to produce. 33,300 warm invitations to church. 3,300 first-time guests. And 330 new members in the next 60 weeks. So what are we doing right now? We're getting ready for them. So first of all, I want to offer a special thank you to all of you who are taking the shuttle. They tell me that our shuttle uh, lot is, is two or three times more full than it has been. This is a way that you can help make room for the guests that are coming. We're looking at all of our systems, the way we greet, the way we welcome, the way we follow up. We are straight up getting ready for these new guests. I just can't wait to see what God is going to do here in the next 60 weeks because you said yes to Jesus. So let's begin our Holy Week journey. Like Christmas, Holy Week is a story that never changes, but it's our story and we should own it. When I think back to my early days as a pastor, it always felt like that we were missing something in Holy Week. And I'll tell you how things went. You would do Palm Sunday, which was the Sunday before Easter, right? And then you would have what they called a Monday Thursday service. And that was remembering the resurrection and no one attended it. I mean, like 12 really faithful people attended. And then you had a Good Friday service where the exact same 12 people who came on Wednesday came back on Friday to remember the crucifixion. And then you had 80 gazillion people show up for Easter. So here's kind of how it went to most people. Party, party. And people had to be wondering, what's everybody so excited about? Well, unless you understand the dynamics of Palm Sunday, and unless you understand the dynamics of the Passover, and unless you understand the price that was paid for our sin, you're really not going to be able to celebrate Easter properly. And so... Even back in those early days, I began to separate these out. And over time, we 
began a different way to approach Easter. Three Sundays out, Palms. The next Sunday, Passover. The next Sunday, our most avant-garde service of the year, the Passion. And then we'll do Easter Sunday. So that is our progression. These are four stories that you need to know. You need to know them as well as you do the Christmas story. And so that is what I want to share with you today. Jesus didn't have to go back to Jerusalem. Things had gone poorly the last time he was there. But he does. And he knows there's nothing but trouble waiting for him there. The feast of the Passover came around and Jesus couldn't stay away. I was in Jerusalem in January. Some of you were with me. I don't know how to explain it, but Jerusalem somehow gets in your blood. It calls you. The temple authorities had already decided that Jesus was too big a threat to allow to live. So the clock had started. What people would be shocked to know is just how little time was on the clock by time it actually started. It'd be like playing a basketball game with two-minute periods. The second it starts, it's nearly over. The establishment's play was simple. Locate, isolate, and exterminate Jesus of Nazareth by any means possible. These next few days that we call Holy Week represent a head-on collision between the kingdom of God and the values of this world. It would be a fight to the death with a most unexpected outcome. Passover, intentionally and annually, celebrated Moses' delivery from slavery in Egypt of the Hebrew children. It was all about being set free in a political sense. It was all about Moses. And during Passover, Jewish pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire walked and rode and sailed to Jerusalem. And for Jews that didn't live near Israel, it became a huge part of their lives. Synagogues were spread throughout the Roman Empire and it became so big a part of their lives that they would tithe, which was 10% of their income they would give to the synagogue. And then they held a second 10% back and it was called a second tithe. And that second 10% could only be used for a pilgrimage to Israel. So for example, if any of you are thinking about going with me and following Paul's footsteps through Turkey and Greece in the fall of 2024 and you're saving now, you're in that tradition of a second tithe. If you're thinking about going to our next Holy Land only trip in January of 2026 and you're beginning to save, that is that second tithe. That's how important the idea of going back to Jerusalem for these special feasts was to the people. We don't know how big Jerusalem was at the time of Jesus. We should, but we don't. The records aren't there. My educated guess is 25 to 50,000, and it swelled to about a quarter of a million during feasts like Passover. There was no way in those days to predict arrival time if you traveled very far, particularly if you were sailing. So people had to err on the side of arriving really, really early. Since Jerusalem proper was not big enough to hold all of the Passover pilgrims, people in surrounding villages like Bethany and Bethpage, even as far out as Bethlehem, kind of opened Airbnbs. 
they would rent out their homes or rooms of their homes to short-term boarders. And people who couldn't afford to do that pitched tents on the Mount of Olives. If you were a local and you had a large house and a big room at the top, you not only could rent rooms in your house and the room at the top, but you could fully cater Passover meals. Jerusalem was a tourist town and there was serious money to be made at Passover. Herod the Great had renovated the city and the temple. Jerusalem had never looked more beautiful. And as people went up to Jerusalem, you always go up to Jerusalem. As people went up to Jerusalem, the city was stunning. And it was also unbelievably dangerous. Revolution was in the air. And the masses wanted both the corrupt temple establishment and the occupying Romans out of Israel. The Jewish people were looking for a new Moses. And that's why they were so excited on this Passover. It was a holiday you celebrated Moses leading the people into freedom. And they're looking for a new Moses. And they're looking for signs to point out just who that new Messiah is going to be. And the buzz on the street is all around a guy named Lazarus from Bethany. Who'd been raised from the dead by the trending prophet Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody wanted a part of that. And the big question in this Passover was, could Jesus of Nazareth be the new Moses? Could Jesus of Nazareth be the promised Messiah? That was the question in Jerusalem. Verse 9 through 11. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him. So the priests decided to kill Lazarus too. For it was because of him that many people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. Most of the leading priests of the time were part of a wealthy sect of aristocrats called Sadducees. The rest were Pharisees. Pharisees are more middle class. They are well educated. They're holy rollers, a bit uptight actually. Uh, the Sadducees are cultured, enfranchised, collaborationist with the Romans. Uh, they're just establishment. Regular people respected the Pharisees. But they didn't like the Sadducees at all. Despite Roman occupation, the Sadducees effectively ruled Jerusalem. Provided they performed two duties for the Romans. Collected taxes and kept the peace. That was all they had to do and they had pretty good lives. Threatening all of this was Lazarus. The used to be dead Lazarus. The Lazarus who's walking around the streets with a t-shirt on that says, guess who raised this guy from the dead? And he's doing all sorts of annoying things like eating and talking and stuff. Things dead people aren't supposed to do. And you got Lazarus messing it all up for the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So they decided to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. Take out the miracle worker Destroy the evidence, boom. Verse 12, the next day, news Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to meet him. If you don't know the history, you're not gonna get this story in any way, shape, or form. If you want something detailed, I wrote a book called Trail Guide to the Gospel of John where I go into the history in great detail. But I'm going to give you kind of a thumbnail sketch so you get an idea as to what is happening. Bethany to Jerusalem is a couple of miles uphill on a good road. 
Word gets out that Jesus is headed from Bethany into Jerusalem. And the people, his supporters, line the streets ahead of him. So who are the people who are at Palm Sunday? They are the curious. They're the pro-Jesus part of the Passover crowd. They're the people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They're people who were touched by Jesus' ministry. And there's also fellow Galileans who are camping on the Mount of Olives that Jesus walks right through. Since this thing happened so quickly and spontaneously, there's no way to organize the anti-Jesus factions that we'll see later. And there's no way to even alert the authorities. So when you think of Palm Sunday, you need to think of a flash parade. Something that happens almost spontaneously and then it just goes away. Palm Sunday was over before the Romans even knew it was happening. Palm branches. Palm branches were insider symbols of Israeli nationalism. So this strongly suggests the people thought this was the beginning of a revolution. In Israel, to wave a palm branch was to say, we want a free, independent Israel. We want the Romans gone. Well, you couldn't very well hold a sign up that says, we want the Romans gone and a free Israel because a Roman soldier would run you through. But there was no law against waving a palm uh, palm branch and everybody knew what it meant everybody knew what it meant so there's something seditious about this in some ways so the people are there they form this flash parade and they're waving palm branches and their message to Jesus is really really simple if you are ready to be our Messiah we are ready to follow you simply participating in this event It's a little seditious, and it had to break up before the soldiers at the Fortress Antonio could arrive. How long do I think Palm Sunday lasted, the parade? 20 to 30 minutes. I don't think it lasted any longer than that. The crowds lined the road, waiting for the parade of one to arrive. In this moment, we have the kingdom of God on the move at a speed of roughly two miles an hour. What did the people say? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. You might say, well, was that spontaneous? No, 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 no. It's like anybody grew up in a highly liturgical tradition where they had like a bulletin that was like 12 pages long and you walked through it every single Sunday. Passover was like that. It was scripted. This comes from Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Probably would have been sung at Passover, but it was a part of the remembrance. And so the people are shouting this. It's part of the liturgy. The Greek word translated Hosanna literally means save us now. And it has both spiritual and political implications. If you don't understand the political tension in the air during Holy Week, you really miss what is going down here. So, verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, Don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming on a donkey's colt. The shift from Walking to riding is intentional. Jesus is going into town. 
He's walking. He sees the people. And so he mounts this donkey. Jesus is making a statement. He doesn't need a ride. It's a two-mile walk on a good road. Jesus doesn't need a ride. He is making a clear statement. What is the statement? In the roaring BCs, a king entering a city in peace came on a donkey. This is a statement that Jesus is a king. The event is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, but it's also a strong indication this is not a an insurrection. An insurrection would have involved the king riding in on a white horse, not a donkey's foal. So what do we have in front of us? We have a donkey, not a horse. We have a civilian prayed, not revolutionaries. We have palm branches, not swords and spears. And we have just a few hundred folks waving palm branches, throwing their coats onto the street, and then melting away as quickly as they'd come. Verse 17, many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. There's no way to overstate the role of miracles in Jesus' ministry. Jesus was attractional. He was attractional. People didn't just come to hear him speak. In fact, when he spoke, he tended to make people mad. They came in hopes he would do miracles. His miracles are what made him so popular. And when you do things nobody else can do, and when you give a few thousand people their lives back, and all of them have friends and family, it's kind of hard to get people to shut up. Some of the people waving palms had heard with their own ears Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth. And they saw Lazarus walk out of that grave. They saw him walk out of that grave. Listen to the verse again. Verse 17, many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. They saw it with their own eyes. That's the kind of thing you talk about for the rest of your life. It's the kind of thing people want to see for themselves. And then John, the raising of Lazarus is what drives Palm Sunday. And this is an important thing to note. The people were just offering witnesses to what they'd seen. They weren't arguing theology. They weren't arguing over what the prophets said the coming Messiah would be. They're not arguing politics. They're just witnessing to what they experienced. My friends, when you invite people to church, don't argue with them. Don't get engaged in Arguments over the history of religion or dinosaurs or whatever people want to argue about. Don't argue with them. Heaven forbid, don't get involved in political discussions. Just tell them what Jesus has done in your life. There's no way to refute that. Just tell them what Jesus has done in your life. I used to be this I met Jesus, and I'm different now. Tell them what you've seen with your own eyes. That's the power of this testimony. The people saw it. Verse 19, then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, the whole world's gone after him. 
You know, Jesus is trending hard. He's trending hard. And the people who are celebrating him, the people who are hoping against hope, he is the promised Messiah. They are people who are intrinsically connected to him. I mean, if Jesus could raise a man from the dead, could he not free Israel from the Romans? If Jesus had that kind of power, could not God use him to usher in the kingdom? One of the things I want you to keep in mind, Jesus is the biggest thing to hit Israel since John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is not recorded as doing a single miracle, not one. Why is John so popular? He's anti-establishment, he's fearless, and he calls it like he sees it. Why is Jesus popular? He's anti-establishment, he's fearless, and he calls it like he sees it, plus miracles. John the Baptist was a powerful force. He preached repentance, but he didn't do a single miracle. Jesus is John the Baptist plus miracles. No wonder people thought he was the Messiah. They thought John the Baptist was the Messiah. He didn't raise anybody from the dead. Palm Sunday is far less a celebration of what Jesus had done That's why the people were there, but that wasn't what they were celebrating. They were celebrating what they hoped Jesus was going to do. When you invite people to church, they will not come celebrating necessarily what Jesus has done in their lives. They will come in anticipation of what Jesus might do. If we tell them that at Christ's church, you will find a loving community, And that Jesus wants to give you a life of purpose, peace, and passion, and power. There will be people who will come in hopes of what Jesus will do in their lives. I believe Jesus can put lives back together. I believe he can heal broken hearts. I believe he can restore marriages. I believe that he can bring prodigal sons and daughters home. I believe Jesus can give us power over addiction and over the things that have destroyed our lives. I believe that there is hope and there is life in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're inviting people to. Who doesn't want some of that? That is what we're inviting them to. At this moment, Jesus is untouchable. He's caught the eye of the Romans, but for now, Jesus remains a Jewish problem. The expectation of the government, of the governor, Pontius Pilate, is that the temple authority will somehow find a way to silence Jesus, to make him disappear. At this moment, they cannot get to Jesus without starting a riot. So they're going to have to let the people simmer down. They're going to have to let this thing play out, and they're going to have to bide their time. And yet, with each day that Jesus stays alive, the threat to everyone enjoying power, from Pontius Pilate the governor to Caiaphas the high priest, is getting more and more compressed. There's two Greek words for time that we see in the New Testament. One is chronos. It's chronological time. It's always exactly the same. The other is keros. And keros is God's time. It's more timing than time. Those of you that are watching basketball right now, you've probably noticed that during the first part of a period, time is one thing. But in the last two minutes of the game, time is something else. 
It can take 20 minutes to play those last two minutes. Everything is intensified. Every call is scrutinized. Everything that everyone does matters because those last two minutes, those final seconds are just absolutely filled with possibility. Everything hangs on them. Holy Week is that. It's that. The closer we get, the more compressed things are. And it's here that the enemies of Jesus have to pivot. They can't simply go out and arrest Jesus and then try him legally. The public will not stand for it. They should have done it sooner if they were going to do it. And I'm guessing they all kicked themselves. So now the priests are going to have to pick their time. They're going to have to arrest Jesus in an isolated area. And hastily and illegally rush him through the legal process with the hopes of having him hanging on a cross before anybody even knows he's there. It's risky. They're going to have to break most of their own laws to do it. But from their point of view, they feel they have little choice. They have everything to lose. Everything's at stake. What you have during Holy Week is high stakes drama and political intrigue. People are growing increasingly desperate. No one's quite sure how all this is going to go down, but everyone is positive there is no going back. Not now. One of the things I think about when I let my imagination just play with the story is what did the people who lined that prayed route and waved those palms, what did they feel? What did they experience? You want to know what my guess is? That during those 15 or 20 minutes that they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and what's Jesus prayed by them on a donkey. My guess is those were the best 15 or 20 minutes of their life. The hopes of their ancestors, everything they'd ever read about. Those of you that are reading the last third of the Old Testament with me, we're in Isaiah. All the prophecies of Isaiah, everything they've ever hoped for, come down to this moment, this man, this donkey, this street, this city, this day. It all converged right there. And those who were standing there got to experience for 15 or 20 minutes the most intense reality they will ever experience in this life, the presence of God. If you've ever experienced the presence of God, completely and totally and wholly, there's nothing else in this world that can compare to it. Nothing. If you've ever truly experienced the presence of God where nothing mattered but God, where the passing lane between you and our creator was completely unhindered. If you've ever had full communion with God for even a second, nothing else will ever do. And we do get those moments here in this fallen world. Oh yeah, they come in hints and echoes and rumors and tastes, but we do get these moments, these glimpses of how things will always be in heaven. And I think the people on Palm Sunday experienced that. They experienced God's pleasure. As you all invite people, there's gonna be something happen that you've not anticipated. Some of you have already started inviting. You've already experienced it. But as you invite people, you are gonna experience God's pleasure. 
you're going to have moments where you feel that you are in complete alignment with the purpose for which you were created. And you're going to have moments when the Holy Spirit flows through you. And it is going to be so palpable and so tangible, it's going to take your breath away. And you're going to be so excited, you can't help but talk about it. Like all those people at Passover, you won't be able to help but share with others what God is doing in you. You see, when we share our faith, one of the things we think about is how it impacts the person we're sharing faith with. And it does. It can change their eternity. But we forget how it impacts us. You. You are going to experience God's pleasure. I've said throughout this 500 initiative, I'm not asking you to force square pegs into round holes. I'm asking you to learn to recognize a round hole. The Holy Spirit's going to make a way here. So what we're giving you are three things. And I just want to share it with you as we start this week. First of all, keep these in your wallet. Keep these in your purse. But these are just business sides cards that say, join me at Christ Church. They've got the church times on the back. I keep about seven or eight of these in my wallet. I keep enough of them that it's really uncomfortable when I sit down. And it reminds me of how much I truly want to give them away. Because every time I give one away, it's a little more comfortable when I sit down. But it keeps me mindful of this. So look for opportunities. If you go out to eat today and you leave a tip, just just leave a card. If someone you run into, you're in a conversation, just listen to the Holy Spirit. Look for those opportunities. And when God brings those to you, just hand them a card. Just hand them a card. I had a conversation this week uh, at post office. And, and I had, was trying to mail something and, and a lot of things went odd. But I was talking to the postal worker who's really helpful and really helping a lot. We finally got down to the end of it. And I said to the postal worker, hey, our church is doing the most awesome, fun thing ever. We're inviting people to church. Would you mind if I left you an invitation? I said, I wouldn't mind a bit. Easy, just easy. Now, if you're in a conversation with somebody that you know pretty well and you plan on sharing the gospel, you can bring this. It's got more information. Keep this with you and you can just simply hand it to somebody. And it's fantastic. And I've gotten so many reports this week from you who have invited people and the people said, I've been looking for a church. That's the kind of stuff God will do. It's a lie of the devil that people don't want to hear this stuff. Some people are desperate and the statistics tell us a lot of people are one invitation away from being invited to church. Let's make that our invitation. So you hand them this, it's got a code on the back, gives them all the information. And then when you've invited somebody for that week, you get this card out with 60 blanks and you write the person's name or the situation. It could be Bob, it could be Julie, it could be waiter. Doesn't really matter, but you write somebody down every week for 60 weeks. That's how it goes. You say, what if something doesn't come up and I get desperate? We thought of that. <laughs> we had the post office help us design these. These are actually also postcards. And so if you get desperate enough, you can simply write somebody a short message, put their address on this, put a stamp on it, send it in the mail. Hey, Bob, I'd love to invite you to church and put their address and it'll get there. Does that count? Barely. <laughs> Barely. 
But yes, yes. Those of you on social media will be sharing the graphics to these. You can send somebody a direct message. You can download the graphics on your phone, send somebody a text message. There are a lot of ways that we can do this together. So what are we offering people? We are offering people what Jesus said in John 10.10. I have come that you might have life and have life abundantly. We are offering people an abundant life made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are gonna be people excited to take us up on that. Community, passion, purpose, peace, and power. You're gonna find, much to your surprise, you're gonna get a lot more positive responses than you think, and you're gonna feel God's pleasure as you roll into this, and it's gonna get better and better and better. We are gonna close with... Our final commissioning. We realize that most of you who are going to do this have already been commissioned and already signed up. But there could be a few people who maybe have been on the the borderline or or maybe you're just here at church for the first time since we started onloading people. You can sign up and get your packet right outside of the doors that have all of this information. And we'll get that to you. But Reverend Carmen is going to offer a prayer of commissioning. And then... She'll be at the front and I'll be at the front. Anybody who would like to still sign up and be commissioned, we're gonna do that this morning before we close. Let's stand. And Reverend Carmen, would you lead us in prayer? And then we'll worship. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to you, Father, we acknowledge that you are the King of Kings and you are the Lord of Lords. Abba, Father, Jehovah Jireh, Father, we come to you, a broken people. We come to you and we tell you, Father, that we are scared. We have anxiety over this. We don't know what to expect, Father. And Father, we know that we can't do this in our own strength. But we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so, Father, we know that you are going to equip us. And that, Father, you are going to give us the strength that we need to proclaim the good news. Father, we say thank you for everything that you have already begun to do. And Father, we say thank you for what you're going to do in the future. Father, may all the praise and all the glory go to you only. Father, I also want to pray for a hedge of protection around your people and around your church. Because we know that Satan will try to rob us of the great things that you're doing through us. But Father, may we remember that you have given us authority in the name of Jesus to cast Satan out. Father, we can rebuke the devil right now in the name of Jesus. We rebuke him. We say he has no place in this E2 movement. Father, he has no place in Christ church. He has no place in your people. We rebuke you, Satan. 
Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill your people. Father, thank you that you have already gone before us and you are making a way. And Father, all we have to do is to trust in you and follow you and listen to you, Father. When you give us that small, still voice to speak to your people. Father, we thank you. We love you. All these things we pray. In your son's name, Jesus. Amen.